0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: It was one of those moments you wish you had captured on video because this esteemed doctor just sat in the stand after the questioning and didn't get up for a good five
2: minutes. I think he was shocked that somebody finally caught him. And now, your hosts, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials Podcast. This is uh, your host, Steve Lowry, and I'm here uh, again with the extraordinary Yvonne Godfrey. And uh, we have got just a fascinating case to talk about today. Yvonne, how are you doing?
3: I'm good. I am so excited to talk about this case. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one.
2: Yeah, this, uh, this case, you know, in reading the facts, and, and uh, we've got two just uh, um, great lawyers to talk to about this. Um, you know, this is something straight out of a soap opera. I mean, you just can't make these facts up.
3: Yeah, I actually, I started with the appellate opinion when I was trying to, um, get up to speed and I really couldn't believe it. It was like the most exciting appellate opinion I've read in a long time. It's just, just so bonkers. I just, I, I just can't wait to hear more about it.
2: All right. Well, let's, uh, let's not leave uh, anybody guessing anymore about who we're talking about and what case we're talking about. The case that we're talking about today is the case of Elizabeth Murphy versus Jefferson Pilot Communications, uh, DBA, the WCSC News Channel 5, and Donald Feldman, uh, which was tried up in Charleston County, South Carolina, by two of our very good friends up the road in Hampton, South Carolina, uh, Johnny Parker and uh, Ronnie Crosby, who are both with the firm of uh, Peters Myrdal uh, Parker Elts- Eltsroth and Dietrich in um, Hampton, South Carolina. And uh, guys, uh, welcome. We uh, we're so uh, so pleased to have you on.
1: Thank you. Uh, glad to be with you.
2: So, uh, just so everybody can know who we're talking about, uh, Johnny Parker has been practicing Law since 1973. Johnny, that's a that's a long time, and, and he's uh, done some tremendous work. He uh, went to undergrad at Clemson, and uh, we won't, we'll try not to hold that against him, and, uh, and then went to law school at, uh, at USC. At a, that's the University of South Carolina, and uh, he has been, uh, like I said, practicing since 1973. Uh, he has won the or been a, a given the Founders Award by the South Carolina trial lawyers. He has uh, helped write chapters in the South Carolina Practice Manual, Uh, the South Carolina damages section and he has been consistently chosen as one of the top 25 lawyers in South Carolina Uh, and um, you know I've known Johnny uh, for a long time and I've known Ronnie for a long time and and these are uh, just two uh, not only fantastic trial lawyers but uh, just great people uh, good friends and uh, and people you definitely want on your side um, and so I'll move on to Ronnie, and Ronnie has been practicing since uh, 1993, uh, went to undergrad at the Citadel, and then uh, went, graduated from the University of South Carolina Law School in 1993. Uh, he clerked for the 14th Circuit Judge uh, Gerald Smoke after that, and uh, Ronnie has uh, consistently achieved some of the top verdicts and uh, settlements in, in South Carolina uh, since he 's been in practice, uh, especially in the area of product liability as well as others and um, just again uh, i've not only have I had the uh, opportunity to know these uh, know Johnny and Ronnie, but i 've had the chance to work on cases with them and uh, you know when you work on a case with a with a great lawyer, it just makes everything easier and a lot of fun so again, uh, Johnny and Ronnie, we wanted to welcome you
0: thank you thank you.
2: So, um, so this case that we're talking about uh, is, like I said, got just some very interesting facts. And uh, Johnny and Ronnie, I'll do my best to sort of lay the groundwork for the case, and then we'll, we'll get into talking about it. Um, and it, when I uh, mess up these facts, which I'm sure that I'm going to do, uh, you can step in and, and clarify and, and tell me where I got it wrong.
3: And let's um, really savor those moments when Steve is wrong. Let's make sure we really <laughs> draw those out.
2: Yeah, That's right. I I, I always loved it. (laughs) Um, So, uh, let's see where to start on this case. So this case, I think maybe the best place to start is that this involves a gentleman named Don Feldman, who was the news director of Channel 5 News up in Charleston, South Carolina. And um, he had a TV show that he had put on called The Carolina Gang, which as I understand it was a political talk show involving both sides of the aisle uh, and a, sort of a roundtable discussion of, of politics. And one of the uh, contributors on there was a lawyer up in Charleston named Sandra Sin. And Sandra was a partner at the Stuckey Law Firm, which was uh, started by uh, a gentleman named Jimmy Stuckey and it was a well-known law firm up in Charleston. And two of the lawyers at, in the Stuckey Law Firm were uh, Elizabeth and Chris Murphy, uh, who were husband and wife. And Elizabeth was the daughter of Jimmy Stuckey. How, how am I doing so far? So, <laughs> so far, so good. So far. So as sometimes happens, Miss Sen decided to leave the firm, uh, the Stuckey Law Firm. And uh, when that happens, you know, we, those of us who have been through a, a, a breakup Know that it can sometimes be like a divorce, and um, sometimes it can get heated. And this is one of those instances where it seemed to have gotten heated, especially it seems between uh, Miss Sin and Miss Murphy. And so there was, needless to say, just some um, distress between the two. And then during this breakup, this guy Don Feldman uh, decides to tell Sanderson that he heard a woman on the airplane that he was flying to Atlanta on. He said she was drinking, said she was with a man who he didn't think was her husband. He said that she said all kinds of things about uh, Sandra Sin and uh, basically what a, a, a bad person she was and then started attacking WCSC News Channel 5 for hiring Sandra Sin and basically went into this long and drawn out uh, discussion of how bad things were. And this is all coming from Don Feldman, who at the time, so he's a very well-respected news person in the Charleston area and and a a fairly powerful person because uh, Channel 5 was well-respected. So he tells her this whole thing and then writes this letter uh, that he's drafted, to Elizabeth Murphy, so somehow it gets fleshed out of that. Johnny, I know I'm murdering the facts now, but somehow it gets through to the two of them, Sandra and to Don Feldman, that the person on there was Elizabeth Murphy. He then drafts some letter to Elizabeth Murphy accusing her of all of these things and saying that um, he's going to take it seriously, he's going to investigate her and he shows this letter to Sandra Sin. Here's the big problem, Yvonne, what do you, what do you think the big problem was when he wrote all that?
3: Um, that, uh, that that was the publishing? I don't know, I feel like I'm in law school. No, me.
2: it was, it, it never happened. I mean, he oh. was just completing, completely making this thing up.
3: I, I thought you were gonna bury that for like a more exciting <laughs> reveal.
2: I thought that was a pretty exciting one. There's and there's more exciting stuff to come. So he so he writes all this stuff as if he's, and and I have and Johnny, you're going to have to help me. I don't know why he he would do this, but he uh, he writes all this stuff as if he's communicating with Elizabeth Murphy. Even goes so far as to write uh, some sort of a simple agreement between Miss Murphy, where she apparently you know allegedly made some admissions. Shows this to Sandra Sin. And it starts to spiral out of control there. It, from what I understand, Sandra Sin showed this to her lawyer involved in the breakup with the Stuckey law firm. Uh, and then shows uh, and then uh, talks to Jimmy Stuckey and basically accuses uh, Elizabeth Murphy of uh, several things and, and says, you know, ask your daughter why she's being sued. And all this is being done without Elizabeth knowing any of it. And it eventually gets back to Elizabeth that she has done all of these things and she's racking her brain saying, what are they talking about? And this letter makes its way through at least the Stuckey law firm and some, and the other lawyers involved. Uh, Elizabeth Murphy has to get her own lawyer. And basically this letter uh, makes its way through the legal community in Charleston. And, and at the time, Elizabeth Murphy is a, is an up-and-coming trial lawyer and uh, basically um, this is being circulated without her knowledge and then when it finally gets to her she's trying to rack her brain think you know what are they talking about and this whole thing just sort of starts to spiral uh, out of control so why don't don't I stop the story at that point because I think I'm uh, not doing a great job of really telling all the facts here and, and, and we're holding back some other juicy facts Yvonne Uh, but Johnny, uh, why don't you step in at this point and, and, uh, and talk about how you got involved in the case and, you know, sort of, what did you think about this mess that you're, that, 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 uh, that I'm describing here?
0: Well, they, I got involved because Jimmy Stuckey is a long-term friend of mine. He, uh, ran for Congress, uh, back in the early eighties, uh, I, helped him with that and got very close to him. Uh, he initially went up to a lawyer whose name I won't call in Columbia and uh, the lawyer in Columbia decided not to take the case. Uh, Jimmy called and asked me if I'd talk to Elizabeth when I did. Uh, by that time, she knew what was going on that, uh, see, initially she was totally in the dark about all this. Uh, this letter was being circulated, and the facts were being circulated around Charleston without her knowing anything about it. She you knew they were talking about it, but didn't know what it was. But uh, Feldman, uh, the whole genesis of this was Don Feldman, uh, what he wanted to do was get close with Sandy Sin, who was a very attractive female lawyer who was single at the time, and Don Feldman was professing to be single even so he was married and he was doing his best to ingratiate himself to Sandy. So I guess he is sort of an age old ploy. Uh, I hadn't, hadn't seen the to pull too much, but I've read about it and heard about it. He fabricated uh, this ordeal to come to the dame's rescue. And uh, he was going to create the controversy on the plane, which he did and made up put in that letter and then he of course went to Elizabeth and got her to agree to retract it all and to retract all the bad things and the things you saw in the civil agreement. What he didn't anticipate was that Sandy was gonna go all over Charleston telling it and telling everybody she saw about this affair that Elizabeth was ostensibly happy while in fact On July 23rd, 1999, thankfully, she was at a soccer soccer game with her receipt and then went to a birthday party. So she was well-covered as to where she was, and obviously it became very um, obvious what he had done. This ploy, of course, they went on. They didn't just quit with it. He went to the uh, television station and got two employees that. Uh, to verify some parts of what he had done. One gentleman by the name of Charlie Lowe, who said he took this uh, agreement to Elizabeth so that she could sign it. And uh, another called by the name of Kara Grimm, uh, who also said that she had saw Elizabeth out in the newsroom on two occasions, which was totally made up. And all of that was made up there. Only defense in the case that uh, the television station had was that it was outside. They wanted to claim it was outside the scope of the agency of uh, Donald Feldman, who was, of course, uh, the really the highest-ranking person out there at the station other than the general manager.
2: Right. And I saw that. And so the, this case, you guys actually tried this case twice, uh, once uh, against Don Feldman, because it, at first the judge had granted a motion to uh, dismiss uh, both Jefferson Pilot and, um, and the news channel. And so I, I assume that's because the, the judge had uh, had at least initially ruled that uh, that this was outside the scope of his uh, of his employment and something he was just doing on his own.
0: No, he he really first uh, said he denied the motions for directed verdict on the agency issue and said he was going to let it go to the jury. We arrived for closing arguments, and he said he changed his mind, and he read the statement, which I'm sure you saw there in the case, in which he said that because this was such a unique, uh, bizarre case, he was going to direct a verdict on the agency issue and hold that WCSC and uh, Jefferson Fowler couldn't be liable. And uh, we of course then got a verdict uh, against Feldman which they had denied coverage for Liberty Mutual law. Uh, uh, we got a verdict and a little over $9 million
2: against Feldman. Right. And, and so you know the thing that uh, Yvonne that I've left out of the story is that so you got this verdict against uh, Don Feldman but uh, by that time, he was in uh, th- prison because he had been uh, essentially stealing money from his from his TV station for almost twenty years at the tune of about two million dollars.
0: That, that's correct. What he was doing, Feldman uh, was he? They would issue. He made up this company called Amera TV, and. Uh, which didn't exist. And he would then give invoices to WCSC for their services. And they would then write the check out to America TV. And then he would put on the end of it TVL. And he would submit those to pay as American Express. So all of the money he embezzled was through an American Express. Card. And as a result of having free American Express, he traveled all over the world and took people from the station all over the world uh, on WCSC's dime. And uh, yeah, apparently, I uh, had no problem doing that and did it for many, many years.
2: Wow. And that was something that was found out after everything that happened with, um, with uh, Sandy Sin and uh, Elizabeth Murphy. Is that right?
0: It was, but there's not a whole lot of difference between embezzlement and, and making up uh, forging checks and his uh, fortune, several agreements and
1: letters. You, you, you get why that his ploy work, is because he took advantage of the ongoing feud between uh, Miss Sin and Miss Murphy. And so, you know, I think his intent was for it to never get out, but just to use that to, as Johnny said, ingratiate himself hopefully romantically with her is what his intent was. But then when Miss Sin started talking about it and it got
2: out, you know, all of it uh, started to unravel. It started to spin out of control and he had to start covering up his lies.
0: And he did. The the more it went, the more he lied. But uh, to give you a little bit of a picture of the situation, Sandy Sin at that time was, I'm going to guess she was on her, 30s, a very attractive uh, young lady lawyer and who happens to be in the Senate in South Carolina now, uh, a very uh, attractive person, and he was obviously very attracted to her.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, so, Yvonne, what do you think about that? I mean, he he creates a problem, and then uh, he solves it, uh, and then hopes that that's just going to help him, you know, uh, be able to take her out on a date, I guess.
3: Oh my gosh. So I have two things to say about this. First, I thought it was going to be because Feldman had a crush on her, but I was like, no, that's just, that's just too good to be true. Like cases just aren't that interesting. And so I can't believe that that was really it, that that was him like putting the moves on her. Um, But the other thing was when I was reading the supposed letter that he had sent to um, Miss Murphy I read it and was reading the stuff that he was, the documents he was saying that he either had from Delta or that he was going to get, that were going to show who Miss Murphy was on the plane with and how many drinks she had and, and all that sort of thing, the pa- you know, the passenger manifest. I read that and I thought, if somebody wrote me, a, sent me a letter that said that, I would call BS right away because I'd be like, you're never going to get that. Um, you know, and some of that is from experience in aviation cases trying to get that stuff. But some, but you know, I guess this was also pre 9/11, and I don't know what you could get then. But that was the other thing. Like when I read the letter, it was super su- suspicious to me because of that stuff—the stuff he was saying he had—that it turned out he never really had.
0: Well, this Sam fell hook, line, and psycho because that, uh, of course, met our need to think that Elizabeth would be doing that. So he. He, he knew, from that standpoint, he knew what he was doing. He uh, obviously played her pretty good with it because she fell hook, line, and sank her for
3: Right, right. Well, I mean, it it is very believable, especially from the the context of, like, I think we've all been on the plane with somebody who drinks too much and starts talking about work or business stuff that they
0: shouldn't yeah, Who are you talk talking about, Yvonne? <laughs> uh, nope. And you better not do it today. You might be on <laughs> the <TV> news.
3: <laughs> so true. I mean, not me. I would never right. do much on a plane, but I've I've read that people do that sometimes.
2: Right, right.
1: The detail that he had in there, though, about the names of people that he was going to talk to, and and you know, it. it, it you know, from somebody without knowledge, you know, it's certainly coming from the head of a news station would certainly appear to be believable, certainly to Miss Sin. You know, why would you, why would you question it? And, and of course, in the context of the ongoing feud between Sin and Murphy, um, you know, he, he had it detailed out, you know, do you believe the head of the news station or you start doubting him? And, you know, of course she was probably ambitious as well at the time because she was, you know, on one of his news programs. So, you know, you, you know, in that world, I mean, I'm sure she wanted to, wanted to believe him.
3: Oh, absolutely. And I, I definitely don't mean to suggest I would have believed it. It was so, it was so detailed and, and the the flip side is, I mean, even when I was reading through the case and knowing there was a case here and I was reading the opinion, even reading the letter, I mean, why would somebody do all that and completely fabricate it? I mean, that's way less expected. I, so I don't. Right. I completely understand why she would read that letter and believe it was legitimate because it's so elaborate to make up.
2: Well, that's what I noticed about it. Johnny, you even mentioned this in your opening that I saw that one of her friends, you know, read this letter. This is after Elizabeth had learned about it and then was getting her own lawyer. And one of her friends had read it and said, you know, this is just, it, it, it sounds so hokey. It just has to be true because who would take the time to make this up? And so even her friends were doubting her.
0: Yeah, they did. One of one that was a lady that was also practicing law with them, and um, it uh, it was quite amazing. But if you look at the letter uh, in its own uh, W.C.S.C. letterhead, looks very official. Of course, uh, being vice president of the TV station is a, certainly a position of power and a position from which you do have credibility.
2: Right. And I think that's one thing, you know, looking back, it's easy to say, well, this guy was embezzling money and, uh, you know, it's just an all around just bad guy. But at the time, uh, he was very well respected in Charleston, right?
0: right. So he was very well respected and appeared at various public functions on behalf of the TV station. In fact, handled the uh, letters to the editor type uh, complaints that came to the uh, TV station. He was the out front guy. So,
2: he was so well respected. So, uh, so Johnny and, and Ryan, what I so I, what I saw is after you got the verdict against Don Feldman, which I uh, assume there was very little chance of collecting based on the fact that he was in prison, um, that you then got the decision by the judge reversed uh, against Jefferson Pilot and the New and News Channel Five, and then tried that case in. <clears throat> Was that 2007 that that case was tried?
0: That's correct. no my started on my birthday, September the fifth, 2007.
2: And how was it to try that case again, and uh, and what were the differences between the first time you tried it?
1: You know, I think it wasn't a lot of difference. The defense was really bought into what their theory was, and they never let go of it no matter what. Um, in the way they were gonna defend it. Um, in the second trial, they did bring in an expert witness um, out of Atlanta uh, to basically say that uh, Miss Murphy, you know, wasn't damaged, um, that, that, that really the event was not very, um, you know, even if this happening was not a traumatic event for, you know, and he tried to liken it to a lot of other stressors that, you know, that the jurors would have all experienced in life. Um, so that was, that was probably the biggest difference. We may have called a couple of different witnesses. You know, what was really interesting is, is that most of the witnesses were all lawyers because that's who all the publications were made to. Um, and you know, now I think one of those, I think one of them was a judge at the time that we tried the second time. Sure. So we had a, you know, what's now senators was one of the, uh, witnesses and, um, we, uh, one of the one of the witnesses is, was a sitting judge um, that got, we had it put up. So, you know, over that period of time, a few things had changed.
0: The Dr. Davis who testified, uh, I, I think probably um, one of the more interesting witnesses that I've had the opportunity to cross examine. Dr. Dave Davis from Atlanta was one of the first board certified forensic psychiatrists in the country and Dr. Davis after testifying at length about 25 things that uh, it was like to have something like Elizabeth had happened to her, and Elizabeth did have to have uh, medical treatment as a result of some ex- uh, extensive medical treatment but he said liking the fact that what happened to her and having this said about her and published around the community in Charleston was about like the same stressor would be to send your uh, your child going off to college, would be something. <laughs> That's what he testified. Oh my God. He well, said it would be very akin to that. That was his testimony. So, uh, it, interestingly, my, my first question after I let him beat me up a while to him was that when it happened to you and you were defamed, it brought you to your knees, didn't it? And he had brought a defamation case in Atlanta for being well, defamed.
2: What was, tell us a little bit about that. What was the basis of the
0: uh, offense? not know that? about it, somewhat about it, because Dr. Davis's son, Scott, was charged with a cold case with murder and uh, there was an article written uh, and it's called Buckhead Burning in the Atlanta Magazine about why Scott wasn't getting prosecuted for the murder of some guy that had some connection. I don't remember the details with uh, his, Dr. Davis's son's wife. And they uh, wrote this article about why nothing was being done about it. Scott left Uh, Georgia went to California and ran for governor unsuccessfully and someone uh, got an interest in the case and why nothing was done about it. In 10 years after the murder, he was convicted of murdering this guy. And I don't know what's happened, but all of this was uh, covered, including uh, Dr. Davis's testimony and a 48 hour piece. And of course, we had video of Dr. Davis testifying about how the defamation that they accused him of trying to help his son uh, unlawfully, how that, them doing that to him, how badly it hurt him and how deeply it hurt him, had brought him to his knees. And So of course, uh, he, he had to, <laughs> he was not able to explain very well had when he got the fame that brought him to his knees, but when she got the fame, it was about like the kids going off to college. So it, it was very difficult
2: for him. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I'm just a little bit shocked that somebody who's a forensic psychiatrist, who I assume you know has probably uh, testified or you know been deposed many times, uh, just thought he could slip under the radar on that. You know, especially in a in a slander case.
1: He had that high of an opinion of himself for sure, and you know I'll brag on Johnny a little bit. You know once we you know dug up this stuff and had his complaint and the quotes in the Atlanta magazine and the 48 Hours piece where he was really how bad his family was torn up about these false allegations, and and truthfully kept it, I think his phrase was "It'll bring you to your knees, partner." Was what he told the, and Johnny set him up perfectly and you know made him read his own words out of that magazine which were totally contrary to the testimony he had just given about you know miss murphy's the injury that this did to her um you know it, it was one of those you know moments you wish you had captured on video because this esteemed doctor just sat in the stand after the questioning and didn't get up for a good five minutes he was just i think he was shocked that somebody finally caught him and uh and of course his lawyers knew nothing about any of his background. And when they were leaving the courtroom, you could hear some uh, profanity being uh, <laughs> asked about by the WCSC lawyer that had put him up. Um, you know, it, it was right comical there at, at for a moment watching that occur. <laughs> and What was really interesting, Steve, you'll like this. Um, this guy was so popular and so, you know, important and, and I don't know how they knew he was testifying, but the entire MUSC Medical University of South Carolina, their a whole group of their psychiatry department came down to watch him testify. So the courtroom was full of aspiring psychiatrists that had, uh, you know, that were in, I guess there were interns that had come down to watch him, you know, this great, uh, you know, forensic psychiatrist testify and, uh, you know it was extremely embarrassing for him to say the least.
2: Um, I mean uh you know I guess they probably got a really memorable lesson that day because uh you don't forget stuff like that.
0: Well Dr. Davis really is out of central casting. He's just uh, most people today won't remember Marcus Welby but he was uh, of course a television doctor who was perfect for you know, Dr. Davis Silva had Harvard graduate with uh, you know impeccable uh, credentials and had been on. Um, you know, he, he was regularly in the news um, with forensic psychiatry issues, but he just had uh, had one bad thing in his past that uh, fortunately we found out about, and this was before. You know, in today's world, it'd be easy to find out, but uh, this was before you could Google.
3: Right. Well, how did y'all, I mean, related to that, I mean, it sounds like um, the defense expert witness helped you do this, but other than that, how did y'all help, um, what did y'all do to help a jury understand the, kind, the toll that this would take on somebody mentally and emotionally? Because um, I think, you know, that's something that to get a jury to appropriately understand mental versus physical damages and to award them appropriately is tough.
0: Well, we had a wonderful uh, Joe Zilberg, a psychiatrist who ended up treating Elizabeth after her initial psychiatrist left the practice, was just a, a fabulous witness in explaining what this does to you. Uh, how it uh, raises the fight or flight syndrome. How you uh, feel like everybody's after you, and, but you you can't get away from it. So you, you want to you don't know whether to, to go uh, to fight and So you're in conflict, and how emotionally that just, uh, absolutely kills you uh, over time. Is this you have this constant fear? of this, whether it's, uh, you know, with her, she knew it wasn't real. She, in fact, testified that because her dad had had amnesia, she wondered whether or not she had had a, a bout of amnesia, and this was actually true until she found where she was and found the uh, uh, receipts for the soccer tickets. Uh, she said, in, in her mind, she was wondering whether that had happened to her.
2: Because yeah. she's questioning her own mental stability because of uh, what's going around.
1: She started seeing a uh, psychiatrist, you know, within a couple of months after this. And, and you know, as a backdrop that the jurors would have been aware of during this period of time that, that added to her anxiety was WCSC had this so-called investigative reporter named Harv Jacobs who would show up at somebody's door with a microphone and cameras rolling, you know, to make his pieces. And so she had this great fear that she was going to walk outside and Harv Jacobs was going to be there with a microphone and camera and start asking her questions about, you know, these, uh, you know, false events, but nonetheless, she would be, you know, confronted with that publicly. And, uh, you know, so she had a legitimate fear because anybody living in the area during that era was aware of Harb Jacobs and, and, and how he liked to play gotcha reporting. So, you know, that, that was an added factor there. And I think most of the jurors probably would have seen some of that at some point in time, and nobody would, would, would want
0: that to happen to them. Well, we called Harb as a witness, though. Yeah. Yeah. For that purpose, but it. Uh, as a side note, Harv is uh, still at it and
2: still on WCSC. <laughs> well, and, and uh, you know, I think one of the things and you did a, a great job in your closing on this, Johnny, is talking about how, you know, it, even when you know what the truth is, just knowing that everybody out there thinks that this could be true or, you know, they haven't heard your side of the story and this is making its, uh, you know, uh, rounds in the, in the legal circles, which, you know, is, uh everything you you know you build your reputation on when you're trying to become a you know uh, build your practice as a lawyer and uh, just how difficult that could be on her
0: you, you know I, I, for that uh, and I don't know if I use this analogy in closing because I't looked at it but uh, it, it's like the the analogy I use for defamation when somebody's been defamed is that uh, suppose a, a neighborhood young guy that's been babysitting all the, the young children there in the neighbor, neighborhood just falsely and clearly falsely accused of molesting a child. Now, who's going to let that guy babysit their children? That's right. Because uh, you, can't, you can't call it back. You can't, as they say, you can't unring the bell. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I, I thought
2: you did a great job in uh, sort of interweaving a lot of the sort of historical quotes about reputation and, uh, and you know, attributed to Abraham Lincoln and Ben Franklin about, uh, I think you one of them you said was that uh, reputation is like fine China. It's often broken and broken and seldom mended. And uh,
0: that's Ben Franklin.
2: Yeah, and that's just, you know, something that, it, it, I mean, just to really tell that story to a jury and get them to understand what effect this had on her was just a, a fantastic job.
1: You know, Steve, I don't think that
2: today with all the,
1: you know, you know, internet and social media that we probably appreciate, um, you know, I think defamation cases get downplayed, you know, because there's always somebody mudslinging out there with politics, but, you know, if you think about it, I don't know about your constitution, but in our constitution, you know, Surprisingly, I mean, defamation is, is called out in the Constitution as well as we have a, a statute about um, defamation, which, you know, is it, always told me at some point going back in time, you know, to, to have that, that particular tort recognized like that, you know, you know is, is of significance, you know. I mean, you don't, you don't see that anywhere else, but uh, it just shows the importance of, of someone's reputation and you know how it can be damaged and, and really as you know Johnny did a good job as you pointed out um you know you just can't repair it um and, and that's why oftentimes you see a lot of uh big verdicts I think in these cases where you think you know there's not a lot to them um and that's certainly the way the defense tried to make this case is well this is really not a big deal um you know it really doesn't hurt you you got all this other stuff going on out here this really didn't damage it right but uh, Obviously, two juries felt differently about
2: that. Yeah, and, we, and what I should mention is that the second case that you tried that was against uh, Channel 5 and, and Jefferson Pilot, that resulted in a $3.95 million uh, award against them. Um, and, uh, and and I looked at your, uh, your closing, Johnny, and it looked like, you know, as far as, like, the meds, uh, while I know they were significant to her, I mean, it, you're talking – a little bit over 33,000 between past and future medicals and to get a $3.95 million uh, verdict out of that is, uh, again, uh, you know, you want to talk about that a little bit about how you really told that to the jury and got them to that, to, uh, where they were going to give away or not give away, but, uh, going to award millions of dollars for, you know, injuries where you're on paper, at least, uh, they weren't as big.
0: Well, you know, the medical was negligible. The, deal was what this did to Elizabeth as a person and her self-confidence and, uh, you know, she quit practicing law as a result of this. Uh, She has not practiced law of anything significant since this and certainly it had just a terrible impact on her because it really, she was an up-and-coming, bright really a young star at a bar and that, uh, you know, she was speaking to Chief Greenberg out front on him on some things and was was in the mix. And all of a sudden, this happened and, and it really did just knock her feet from under. It was a, a, a terrible personal thing for her and uh, it was, I'll be honest with you, I think the verdict was low. Right.
2: Yeah, I could I could see that, um, but again, I mean, it's a fantastic job. So, one thing I was wondering uh, in reading this is how was it determined, or did Don Feldman at some point come out and, and admit that he had made all this up, or was it figured out some way, other way? How was it determined at some point that this was just not true? Was it the fact that she that she was able to find her receipts? It was
0: the fact that she was able to find out where she was. Okay. Uh, he never did uh, totally admit that, that, I can recall. I don't think uh, we called him as a witness uh, in the second trial. I can't. I don't think
2: he admitted that he made it up.
1: Wow. I don't think he ever did,
0: but he might you know, have taken the fifth. I in, can't remember what he did.
1: In fact, he early on, even when it was becoming, I mean, he was still, like you said earlier, telling lie after lie. to to help, you know, to keep it going, you know, telling lies to his employer. And I I, I think that um, they actually ended up, did they do an investigation? Uh, Well, they They never did
0: find it. it, They never came to a determination as to whether or not he, in fact, uh, it was true or not. They they wouldn't, they supported him. Uh, President of the station and They stayed behind him and stayed uh, until he, once they found that he had uh, his hand in that cookie jar, it was suffering. Sort of lost interest in
2: him. I could definitely see that. You know, and that also, I mean, so it seems like that the the station was at least backing him until the fact that they realized that he was stealing money from him. How did that all get figured out?
0: Well, it it got figured out because. Station and said that, that we got this check and it looks a little funny uh, the, the way it's made out and that's when it all came to light. Uh, interestingly enough, I think that the WCFC TV and Jefferson Valley pretty well did all right because they had him bonded. Yeah. But he served his uh, time out uh, in federal prison. And interestingly, his lawyer, Cumming Ball Gibbs, who is uh, now dead, was a a very fine lawyer in Charleston. And of course, uh, he uh, was of the view that uh, WCSC was uh, trying to get Feldman to say something that wasn't so, uh, or whatever, I can't. I don't want to cast it in the wrong light, but. In any event, he, he thought that he had to part ways with W.C.S.C. on behalf
2: of Feldman. You you mean as part of the defense that they were putting up?
1: Yes. Yeah. While well, okay. he was in prison, I think they reached out to him, and there was at least an allegation that that they were trying to get him to shade his, his testimony in his in their favor, um, and and that's what that's that was at least a purported reason why he took the fifth, wouldn't testify because he was. He was. He said he was threatened by someone that he would have an increased sentence if he didn't cooperate. So that was sort of a little backdrop there, that, you know. That, you know, which is probably fitting for this whole, you know, bizarre case. That to add in, you that, know, that element.
0: Another interesting fact about the second trial: Judge Markley Dennis, who's a fine trial judge, was a classmate of mine, and John Kerr, the lead defense lawyer, was also a classmate. So, we had uh, plaintiff funded as a judge all out of uh, my class at law school. Wow. Oh,
3: How did your um, – I'm just thinking about what a, a long road this was for you all, obviously, but also what a long road this would have been for your client going all the way up through a first trial, then through an appeal, and then through a second trial. Um, you know, when it was all said and done, did she – I mean, that's a long time to sort of be – put through uh, the stress that that can be on a client and you know how did she do was she did she feel vindicated at the end did y'all get a sense of that
0: I, I think she did feel vindicated and she uh, obviously was very appreciative uh, as I said her her dad uh is a little bit older than I am but a, a very very close friend and uh it was I mean in fact Elizabeth when she was her dad was running for Congress. Uh, they would, she and her sister and Jimmy would come stay with me, and so I it was. i I'm very close to them, so I was very. And I know you say you don't get emotionally involved with your clients, but if you're good, you do. I think, <laughs> I think that if you don't. You probably can't. If you can't feel that pain, uh, then I don't think you can represent them well.
2: Uh, it's hard not to, especially when you hear facts like this. I mean, you, you know, just for, uh, you know, this guy to make up this thing whole cloth uh, just to, you know, impress a woman, you know, and Elizabeth Murphy had zero idea of what was happening to her behind the scenes. I mean, it's, uh, it's just a crazy story.
0: Probably the same amount of probability that, that, happen, that happening as it would that you'd get hit by a falling star.
2: Right, right.
3: Right. I mean, and on, on top of all that, when I was reading, I just kept thinking about how, I mean, this is terrible no matter where it happens, but Charleston's a small town. I mean, you know, it's a city, but it's a small town. There's no, you know, there's no escape. There's no way everybody isn't going to hear about it. And the legal community is even smaller. So, um, you know, I think it's terrible no matter where that would happen to you. I imagine that happening to me. And it. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think no matter where I lived, it would just be horrible, but I just think in Charleston, there's no, you know, there's no hope that there's uh, a town, part of town that didn't hear about it.
1: <laughs> uh, it. It was, it was well spread in a, you know, as you say, small legal community. And if you think here, we're going back to 1999, which was well before Charleston's, you know, current growth, uh, so, it
0: was a very small legal community that, that explains why i've I've tried a good many cases, and I don't think I've ever had one that was as well attended by the public there was There were lawyers they filled the courtroom uh, pretty well every day there was a a, a lot of the legal community was following it
3: yeah, that.
2: All right. Well, guys, is there anything else that you want to tell us about that trial? I mean, that that is a, a great story and, you know, gives hope. I mean, one thing I guess I would ask you is that when you see another defamation case come in the door, is it one that you're looking at or are you shying away from or how do you feel about them?
1: Well, Johnny takes them all the time. He's currently handling <laughs> a number of them. I think I've tried, I think, three or four with him, um, and some of them were pretty bizarre. And I'll tell you, Steve, I am. Um, you know johnny had worked this case up and i you know once it became obvious they weren't going to offer him anything and he's going to try it, he asked me to go help him try it and it just so happens i think um i had a trip scheduled to go to the bahamas during that time and i was like this is just too you know it's too much for me i don't want to get in all this mud because you know when you claim emotional distress everything comes in and they right. crossed liz and brought in every aspect of her life her medical records And, you know, I just didn't like, you know, I guess looking at it, I was like, this is too muddy. I don't want to get in this. And, of course, I didn't go to the Bahamas and spent two weeks in 2003 trying it. And then we went back again in 2007. Um, So, uh, yeah, Johnny still takes them. I think he's he's got a knack for those.
0: Well, you know, they are, to me, they are fascinating cases because... In those, uh, you get a, the worst and the best of human nature. And they all, uh, every time if you got a, a viable defamation case, it's a wonderful story. It's, uh, because something's gonna awry. Somebody, right. somebody has, has stepped outside the bounds of decency and somebody has decided for all of our human trait and uh, bad traits, uh, such as avarice, greed, jealousy, and all of those, uh, the the uh, eight deadly sins, uh, they're all involved in it. So, uh, you know, they, they make fascinating stories, and so I think that's why I like it, uh, and it is human nature uh, generally at its worst, and so yeah it's best.
2: So, you know, it made me think of something, what you were saying there, Ronnie, is, you know, talk about uh, how you prepare your witness, I mean, sorry, to prepare your uh, client for taking the stand, because as you say, in a case like this, you know, pretty much everything's on the table, and I'm assuming, you know, every bad act in the, in the past that she's done, and hopefully she hadn't done much, that, you know, that could all be in play to prove that she had done this one. How, how did that go?
0: exactly how you prepare them. You tell them that anything they got to hide is going to come out. Let's talk about it. Of course, by the time Elizabeth testified, she'd been through the wrangle, uh with depositions. I've forgotten how long, but uh, uh, the John Kerr, who was representing uh, WCSC, he uh, I mean, he, He had an odd way of doing this case, and his defense was, well, it didn't have anything to do with the TV station, but even with that, he was gonna attack Elizabeth as much as he could. He just didn't have anything to tackle with. He really didn't have anything to speak of, and therefore, uh, Ronnie was reminding me the other day, during the trial, uh, during the closing argument, and I, can't really, I guess it was the second trial, the uh, the judge had ruled out certain things where Curt didn't pay it a bit of attention. So uh, he uh, said, uh, even though judge had you know, hit that he could not use it, he used it anyway, and uh, Judge Dennis called a recess in the uh, middle of the closing argument. And the reason I mentioned that it, is the only time I've ever had that happen. And he... Got us all back in chambers and he read the riot act to Mr. Kerr to say at least. And uh, we went back out. And the judge told him that, that what Mr. Kerr had told him was totally improper. He drove it out. And, and as best they could, they would uh, disregard it. Of course, it, what he said then, it, what the judge said helped us more than what Kerr said to hurt us.
2: Right. So you know, one of the other things that I was just wondering—I, you know, hate to get into you know all the personal parts of your case—but you know there was an allegation in there that she was on the plane with somebody other than her husband. How did that affect uh, uh, Elizabeth's marriage?
0: Well, it doesn't. Uh, they were a close couple. Chris is a lawyer, also, and of course he knew it was totally made up. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that. It, when the first uh, looking at it, by the time they actually saw that, see, this thing had been going on uh, between lawyers Tom Waring, who was the in-house, uh, outside in-house counsel for WCSC, and Jimmy were good friends. So the first thing he did when he heard about this, Jimmy went to Tom said, "What in the world's going on?" And of course, Tom uh, pretty well took station side until it became obvious that, that it was made up. And, uh, but uh, it, this thing had brewed around Charleston probably for several months before uh, Elizabeth ever knew exactly what was what. So she knew something was going on and knew people were talking about it and knew that She'd go to a, a party or whatever bar association function, and I mean, she felt like people were talking about it. And I'm sure they were because if we hit it, Sandy, what she said, yeah, I told everybody, I told a lot of people because uh, you know, obviously that was big news, and I believed it. yeah.
2: Well, again, uh, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This has been uh, been fascinating, and um, that's just a, a tremendous result in a, uh, in a difficult case. And if you wanna uh, look up Johnny Parker, Ronnie Crosby, learn more about them, you can look them up on the uh, internet at pmped.com. Uh, thank you so much, guys.
0: Back you, Steve. Thank you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be Hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining. And a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
3: Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show... Or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
3: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We,
2: we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast On The Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
3: Thank you for listening.